Section 20 of Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade on the Congo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Omar Raymond. Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade on the Congo by Edmund Dene Morrill. The Duty, What Britain Can Do, Part 1. What Great Britain Can Do. Extracts from speeches in the House of Commons and House of Lords. It had always been the boast of this country, not only that our own native subjects will govern on principles of justice, but that ever since the days of Wilberforce, England had been the leader in all movements on behalf of the backward races of the earth. Here was an occasion when those responsible for our policy, basing themselves on a treaty publicly and solemnly made, might pursue those great traditions, and by taking the initiative, in this matter might add to the annals of the good deeds of the country, Mr. Herbert Samuel, 1903. It was obvious that there was a complete enslavement of the whole population, as the suppressors of slavery and the slave trade, who had always led Europe and had the highest degree of responsibility under the engagement of the powers at Berlin to watch over the execution of the Berlin Act for the protection of the natives, Sir Charles Dilke, 1903. The treaties made between the Congo states and ourselves had undoubtedly been overridden, and therefore he supposed the Undersecretary for Foreign Affairs would not deny their right to interfere. Then arose the question, was it expedient that they should do so? His answer to that was in the affirmative. Sir John Gerst, 1903. He thought we could do something alone, Mr Alfred Emmett, 1903. He altogether denied that they could deal with the Congo state as if it were a state like France, Austria, Germany, or any other power. The Congo Free State was an artificial creation. Lord Fitzmaurice, 1903. In face of the facts which are now officially admitted, he asked the House whether the time was not come when they should sweep away all the difficulties which stood in the way and force the government to take stronger action than mere words and dispatches to deal with this horrible scandal. Sir Charles Dilke, 1904. He was driven to the conclusion, therefore, that the only remedy was for the public opinion of Europe, and particularly of this country, to bring into force the clause of the convention under which the Free State was founded, Mr Austin Taylor, 1904. The Congo Free State lay absolutely at the mercy of this country, or any other country which chose to say it would occupy the capital at Boma in the name of civilization. Lord Fitzmaurice, 1904. There has never been a policy of which it might be said, as truly as of this one, that it was the policy not so much of His Majesty's government as the policy of the House of Commons. Lord Percy, 1904. He did not think any of the great European powers, with the facts so clearly established as they now were, ought to be content, in view of their own honour in the matter, to sit still and do nothing. Sir Edward Grey, 1904. Our own position in Africa must be considered the infamous treatment of the natives in the Congo Free State must affect the position of the natives throughout Africa. The knowledge of the injustice inflicted upon the natives in the Congo Free State was carried by those subterranean wires which all natives employed from one part of the continent to the other and was bound to affect the condition of the natives under the British, German and French flags. So Gilbert Parker, 1906. We held a national responsibility the right of intervention seemed to him to be clear beyond dispute. Sir Charles Dilke, 1906. Apart altogether from treaty obligations, every state interested in any portion of the territory of the Congo comprised in the Convention 
had not only the right, but was under the obligation from the point of view of self-interest to consider how far the present system of misgovernment carried with it a serious menace to the reputation and even to the security of the European governments. Lord Percy, 1906. But I may add, quite irrespective of any right we enjoy under the letter of these acts, that we have a moral right to interfere, which comes to us in consequence of the false pretenses, I cannot use a gentler word, under which the Congo state has acquired its privileged position in that part of Africa. Lord Lansdowne, 1906. In the last three chapters, I've endeavoured to establish that from King Leopold, no alteration in the existing state of affairs on the Congo is to be looked for, that to expect reform from that quarter would be puerile, that reform can only come with a sweeping removal of the cause of the evil by cauterizing the evil at its roots. If there ever was a case where the old French adage, il faut frapper à la tête, applied, surely this is one. I've tried to show also how extremely difficult, not to say virtually helpless, short of a complete rupture between King and Parliament, is a position of Belgium, and how foolish it would be to regard Belgian annexation as a certain panacea within the pale of practical politics, or even as a necessarily certain panacea if it were within that pale. Hostility to a Belgian annexation of the Congo on the lines laid down by the Berlin and Brussels Acts, there is none in this country. But it is obvious that agreement to a Belgian annexation on the lines laid down by the king is utterly impossible. The neutrality of Belgium is guaranteed by the powers in the interest of international peace. The neutrality of a Belgian colony embracing the great heart of Africa and run like a slave farm through the medium of an ever-growing native soldiery armed with weapons of precision could be recognised by no power with tropical dependencies contiguous to its frontiers. As it is, the policy of laissez-faire adopted by the signatory powers of the Act of the West African Conference of 1885, having possessed in tropical Africa, in permitting the evolution of an international association for the promotion of civilization and commerce, from a Congo-free state to a military despotism resting upon slavery and rifles, is incredibly short-sighted. To allow such a condition of things to continue, with the substitution of the Belgian for the Congo flag of King Leopold, would be insensate. Apart from all questions of humanity and legitimate political interest in Europe, acquiesce would imperil Belgian neutrality in Europe. Of that, no one who understands this grave question can entertain the slightest doubt. But after all, we have not to consider possibilities, but actualities. Discussion, passionate or otherwise, can be renewed and yet again renewed in the Belgian Parliament. The projected law on the colonial possessions of Belgium may give rise to endless debates. Compared with the existing facts, all this is academic. Existing facts they are which confront us, which call out for immediate solution, drastic and thorough. The rubber slave trade flourishes, unchecked, unimpaired, unaltered by all the talk and ink spilling of the last four years. It has been exposed in all its horrors, but it is in being. Its activity has been stimulated by a sense of precariousness in the future. Its area of devastation increases, and with it the number of victims. That is the immediate consideration. All else is subsidiary. The year 1907 is a great anniversary, bringing with it a flood of recollections. The 26th of March 1907 will be in the centenary of the Royal Assent to the Bill, passed in both Houses of Parliament, abolishing the overseas slave trade. From the ashes of an international conference, summoned in the name of Almighty God, has sprung a traffic in African misery more devilish than the old, more destructive, 
more permanently ruinous in its cumulative effects. A British government, a liberal government, with many misgivings but with the best of intentions, by its active participation in that conference and by its adhesion to the conclusions thereof, incurred a responsibility which cannot be set aside. Today, a British government, a liberal government, is in power with an enormous majority, strong and respected abroad, and has been given a mandate by a democratic parliament, convinced and unanimous to deal with this new form of the African slave trade, which the cupidity and the baneful ambitions of one man have reared in the heart of Africa. Behind a unanimous parliament stands a united press. This government and its predecessor in office have both alike addressed numerous protests to the author of the evil, publicly and privately, protests which have not merely been ignored in the sense of effecting improvement, but treated with contempt so marked as to be perilously akin to insult. The evil continues. This government and its predecessor in office have both alike held their hand when they could have struck hard and swift and in strict conformity with the treaty rights of Great Britain. The evil continues. Two years ago, the predecessor of the present government invited formally the cooperation of the other signatories to the West African Conference of 1885 to join with them in handling this evil, but the invitation was not accepted. The evil continues. A few months ago, the present government reiterated informally that invitation. The evil continues, and the author of the evil, in an insolent manifesto addressed to his secretaries and directed at Great Britain, has defied the British government to carry out the mandate given to it by Parliament, placing himself above the reach of pledges and the law of nations. And the great anniversary is upon us. We have put our hands to the plough. We cannot draw back. For the sake of our dignity as a great nation, for the sake of our traditions as the emancipators of the races of Africa, as an African power having legitimate interest to maintain, we cannot wait forever. But have we not waited long enough? Surely the cup is full and overflowing. Internationally, our position has seldom been stronger, nor the home popularity which would attend positive action more assured to our government from every section or public opinion. So strong indeed do we consider ourselves to be from this country, from its foreign minister, has come the first clear proposal for a reduction in the world's armaments. From this country, from its premier and leader in the mother of parliaments, has come a message of sympathy addressed to the youngest of parliaments under circumstances which make of that message an historic pronouncement in favour of the liberties of men. Are we then not strong enough to rescue the races of Central Africa from enslavement and destruction at the hands of the man to whom we entrusted their destinies? While we wait, they perish, and there is no reason why they should. No interests of a great misguided nation are concerned. No sentiments imbued in generations of thought have to be rooted up and educated out of existence. No cataclysm in world politics hangs in the balance. No onrush of religious fanaticism is to be apprehended. Action to stay the extirpation of these African peoples is attended by none of the perils bound up with the conflicting international claims and racial animosities, which make a satisfactory settlement of the Eastern question so difficult. There is action we ourselves can take in virtue of treaty rights, which in itself would almost of necessity give rise automatically to a renewed international conference. What is that action? Let us turn to the Declarations Exchange and the Convention passed with the representative of King Leopold in 1884. We recognise the flag of the International Association on specific grounds. What were they? That the Association had come into existence 
for the purpose of promoting the civilization and commerce of Africa and for other humane and benevolent purposes. 22 years later, we find that King Leopold's enterprise consists not in promoting civilization and commerce, but, as admirably defined by Lord Percy in the House of Commons, in the accumulation of rubber at an infinite cost of human life and suffering, for mercenary motives to quote Lord Lansdowne, we have been grossly deceived, therefore, and in that deception practised upon us resides a prima facie case for declining any longer to regard King Leopold's African flag as the emblem of a civilised administration, an administration whose object is to accumulate rubber at an infinite cost to human life and suffering, as deliberately stated in the British House of Commons by the Under Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, has no call upon a recognition in any case, still less so when such an object is totally at variance with solemn pledges made to us in the past. The steamers which King Leopold employs under his African flag can be declined admittance to British territorial waters. At present they enter our ports, and at the most the Treasury would lose £1,000 per annum in the light dues and other port charges they pay. Not the most virulent lady-hater of Mr Asquith would attribute to him a desire to oppose the performance of a national duty for the sake of £1,000. The nominees King Leopold has appointed to represent exclusively his African interests in this country can be informed that we no longer recognise them. In other words, the exequator can be withdrawn from the three or four Congo Free State consuls who carry on their royal master's behests in England and in Scotland, and whose offices were until recently, when public attention was drawn to the fact, distributing centres for the scurrilous publications of the Press Bureau. It is a scandal that one of these consuls should be an Englishman and the president of a leading British Chamber of Commerce. Other measures are open to us. Those I have denoted are the mildest, and absolutely no impediment stands in the way of their realisation. I pass to the Convention. What are our rights under that Convention? They are one, that until sufficient provision shall have been made for the administration of justice on the Congo, the sole and exclusive jurisdiction, both civil and criminal, over the persons and property of British subjects, shall be vested in British consular officers in accordance with British law. Article 5. This is called consular jurisdiction, or the exercise of rights of extraterritoriality. They are two, that British subjects are entitled at all times to sojourn and establish themselves, are entitled to enjoy the rights of buying, selling, letting and hiring lands, buildings, mines and forests, founding houses of commerce, carrying on commerce under the British flag, they are entitled to protection in their persons, property, free exercise of religion, navigation, commerce and industry. Article 2. Very good. These pledges have not been kept. The need for British consular jurisdiction for the protection of our own subjects in King Leopold's estate is nowhere, and by no one disputed in this country. The present government does not dispute it. The past government did not dispute it. Speaking in office, Lord Percy said on June 9th, 1904, the only practicable suggestion which, I think, has been made this afternoon is that this country should revive its claim to the exercise of extraterritorial jurisdiction in the Congo state. Sir Edward Grey, speaking in opposition on the same occasion, concurred. He thought we might put the establishment of consuls with consular jurisdiction on the ground that if other powers would not cooperate with us in this matter, in what we considered the general interests of humanity and civilization, which were as much theirs as ours, 
We must, at any rate, see to the protection of our own subjects. Speaking in July last, Sir Edward Grey said, The time must come when we shall have to consider whether these rights should not be exercised. On the same occasion, Lord Lansdowne said, All I can say is that I hope, if these abuses continue, we shall claim our right to appoint consuls with consular jurisdiction in the Congo. At the very least, 100 public meetings, including two towns meetings in Liverpool and Sheffield, held throughout England and Scotland in the last two years, have passed resolutions urging this step upon the government. The marvel is that it was not taken years and years ago. British coloured subjects ill-treated, flogged and shot. An Englishman hung out a hand, a British consul so busy for two years inquiring into grave abuses perpetrated towards British coloured subjects in the very neighbourhood of the capital of the Congo itself as to be unable to stir from the spot. And all this while a weapon lies rusting in our grasp. And now King Leopold's anger is turned upon the British missionaries. His so-called administration of justice is utilised to entrap and browbeat them. His object? To terrify them into silence. Furious that they have convinced his own commission, they, whom his press bureau and his Brussels staff have reviled with every opprobrious epithet, which placed on record that the natives had come to regard them as the sole representatives of justice and equity in the country, and still we hesitate. To lead these brave men, they are not all brave, perhaps, but many of them are, and to those who have spoken out, humanity owes a debt of gratitude. To leave them at the mercy of Congo justice is to acquiesce in their dragooning, is to show them that whatever the British public may think of their devotion in their cause of right, a British government which tomorrow can ensure for them absolute security from molestation of any kind, looks askance upon their intolerable situation. Our duty towards these men is clear, and our duty towards the 2,000 coloured subjects of the Crown on the Congo is equally empathic. They are entitled to claim protection. Qis Romanum Sunt. The case for consular jurisdiction for our own subjects is, on the face of it, overwhelming. But consular jurisdiction has several other sides to it. Cases have occurred of British coloured subjects being employed as subordinate agents in charge of outstations in the bush, rubber stations, and having committed, or allowed to be committed, in that capacity the brutalities which are inseparable from such work, and having been sentenced by the Congo courts, whose severity towards such virtually helpless victims of the system is proportionate to the criminal laxity shown towards the real guilty parties, the European representatives of the king and his trusts, whose instructions the former must needs obey. There is a tendency on the part of the Foreign Office to adopt a high moral, wash-our-hands sort of attitude in regard to British coloured subjects thus involved. Several questions which I have caused to be put in the House relating to specific cases which came under my notice have been greeted as though there was something shocking and irregular in the slightest exhibition of concern in the fate of such unfortunates. It is an attitude with which I am wholly unable to agree. So long as the Congo judicial system is what it is, Vide section 3, so long will there be no thorough investigation into outrages perpetrated by or through the orders of persons directly or indirectly connected with the executive, and so long will the Congo courts fail to deal competently with cases of British coloured subjects who from time to time may find themselves mixed up in such outrages. Take for example the case of Sylvanus Jones, a native of Lagos and a subordinate of the man Caudron, Vide section 3. If that case had been brought before a British court, it would have yielded clear evidence of the moral complicity of the Supreme Executive. 
That evidence is, indeed, afforded by the verdict of the court itself, but is purposely obscured by the refusal of the court to pronounce an opinion on the admissions showing executive toleration for the deeds which the accused, acting under the direct orders of his immediate chief, Cordron, who himself acted in cooperation with the local sub-chief of police, is alleged to have committed. The vital point is this, that no British consular court would have pronounced judgment upon Sylvanus Jones without sifting to the bottom the responsibility for the acts sanctioned by him under the instruction of a European employer. Now one of the most essential needs of the situation is the securing of positive documentary evidence in this regard, and British consular jurisdiction would be an invaluable and unique means to this end in cases like that of Sylvanus Jones. Consider too the personal aspect. A. The British consul in the Congo reports that Jones had no opportunity of engaging counsel, although he had enough money to do so if the option had been allowed him. B. He was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment for responsibility in the murder of one woman killed in the course of a raid upon a native village for shortage in rubber. C. Cordron, under whose orders he acted, was proved to have conducted raids which led to the positive murder of 200 people, of personally shooting a woman in the breast, of ordering a native chief to be shot in prison, etc., and only received five years imprisonment. The case of Sarah Smith of Freetown is another in point. He had taken hostages, which, the reader will remember, the Governor General himself has authorised and indeed recommended upon numerous occasions for shortage in rubber and the hostages, most of them women and children, had died of hunger. His defence was a simple one. He had nothing to give them to eat. Atrocious as this bold statement sounds, let the reader turn to the admissions made by the Commission of Inquiry, sections 3 and 4, in connection with the food taxes, and bear in mind that such things as women dying in prison of starvation are all part and parcel of inevitable incidents in a vast system of criminal oppression to obtain revenues by armed force for private ends. The court which tried him and sentenced him found that he too was acting with the toleration of the authorities in taking hostages. I repeat then that far from putting on a mantle of superior righteousness over these cases, it is the bounden duty of the British government to provide machinery requisite for plumbing them to their deepest depths. So far we've considered consular jurisdiction mainly in the light of the legitimate interests of British subjects, and to this I shall refer again in dealing with the missionary question. But as a means of coping with the paramount evil, the ill-treatment of the natives of the country, the efficacy of British consular courts can be doubted only by those who have not examined the subject. I do not care in the least, said Lord Lansdowne last July, whether there are British subjects to look after or not, but what I do feel is that the presence of half a dozen Englishmen will be worth more than a whole row of inspectors or officials belonging to the administration of the Congo Free State. Precisely, but the contention can be amplified. A British court of justice, one set up on the Congo with sole jurisdiction over British subjects, civil and criminal, would hamper at every turn the working of the system of injustice perpetrated towards a people of the land. The Aborigines would be profoundly impressed by the knowledge of which they would receive ocular demonstration that the humblest crew boy, the various steamer hand or carpenter boy of slave blood, was certain of absolute justice in the teeth of the highest in the land, provided he were a British subject. They would compare the position of such men with their own miserable existence, a position incomparably more secure than that of the oldest and most venerable indigenous chief. They would realise what white justice at its best really was, 
and with that revelation would arise in their crushed spirits the glimmerings of a new hope. The moral effect would react in a hundred ways against the present regime. The independence in wrongdoing, the right to work iniquity, and fear no question would be struck at its very roots, in the face of a tribunal whose sole duty it would be to find the truth and proclaim it. It is impossible to suppose the present machinery of the Congo courts sitting side by side with the British court without producing results which, inter alia, the natives of the country would derive incalculable benefit. The moral effect in Europe of the establishment of British consular jurisdiction on the Congo would be immense. It would show the world that the British people were determined to mark, by a step whose significance could not be mistaken, their abhorrence of King Leopold's methods and their firm intention of passing from words to deeds. A right to so act is unquestionable, and if any of the signatory powers of the West African Conference were disposed to see in such a step a disquieting indication of exclusive British political interference in the affairs of the Congo, well, the remedy would lie with them. They could assent to our demand, made in the general interest of humanity, for an international conference. Moreover, they could copy our policy, for several of them stipulated in 1884 for the same rights as ourselves. Sir Edward Grey himself met that possible, but unlikely difficulty, in his usual straightforward manner, two years ago. If the susceptibilities of other powers should be aroused by such action, he said, then by all means let them appoint consuls of their own, meaning, of course, as is clear from the text, consuls with consular jurisdiction. And for the rest we have, perhaps, consulted the susceptibilities of other powers too much in refraining from taking action which has been open to us, not as co-signatories of the Acts of the West African Conference, but under our own treaty rights with King Leopold, rights which can be contested by no power or powers. The sooner we show other powers that we are in earnest, the sooner we'll talk give way to something more practical. To obtain collective action, at which we aim, an individual lead is of paramount necessity. End of section 20. Recording by Omar Raymond.